This morning, we are in the New Testament. Anybody happy to be back in the New Testament? We've been in Genesis for a couple months here. Genesis, or we are in John chapter 4, verses 5 through 26. So Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who is speaking to you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are here among us. We pray that you would plant your word deep in our hearts, that you would plant in us your Holy Spirit, that well of living water. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. Amen. I do enjoy being back here in the Gospel of John, and it's been so long, it was last November, I looked it up this week, how long it had been since we were in the Gospel of John in particular, um, because last fall we started in September, like, like September right now, in the Gospel of John, kind of making our way slowly through that book, and here we are, and so we need a little bit of context here. Jesus, here in John chapter 4, he is pretty well into his ministry. He already has been, uh, he's met John the Baptist, he has chosen some of his disciples, he's turned water into wine, and all of this was happening around the city of Jerusalem. Around the city of Jerusalem. 
And he decides he's going to continue his ministry. He's going to head north back to near where he came from. He's from uh, the Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is in the north. And if you go there traveling with your disciples on foot and you go in a straight line, you will pass through kind of uh, this other nation or this other region that's kind of cuts across Israel in the middle. And the name of that place is Samaria. This is where Jesus is as we started. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So this is ancient land that has been in the land of Israel for a very long time. And yet somehow we as kind of outsiders to this, as, as, as uh, the author of this book may well have been too, somehow it's, it's Israel, but it's outside of Israel. It's in this place called Samaria. And Jesus sits down at the well that is right there for town. There's this kind of this, this town well that the town uh, all come out to during the day. And he sits down because he's tired out from his journey. This is one of those things I always like to uh, take notice as we're going through the scriptures of where Jesus is, is relatable and to just kind of highlight that because sometimes Jesus seems very kind of far apart or very kind of high up and in the sky and in the heavens. In fact, in the Gospel of John, when he starts out, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh. All of that is very kind of highfalutin language. It's, it's not... It doesn't connect as much. But when Jesus says, when it says Jesus is tired on a Sunday morning, I think some of us know what it feels like to be tired. Like, for instance, you might uh, lose your place as you're reading the scripture if you're a little bit uh, tired. as we, are, as we are looking at this, um, this woman, her first question really lays out all the, uh, the conflict that's going on in the scripture. Jesus asks her for a drink. And the Samaritan woman asks, asks him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And we can kind of take that um, piece by piece. How is it that you, a Jew, Jews and Samaritans, as it says kind of parenthetically there, because John knew that the gospel was going to be read by lots of people like us that don't know kind of these inter, uh, inter-family conflicts that are going on in the land of Israel. The Samaritans and the Jews, one time in the way past, they had common ancestry. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're talking about Joseph's well here. This used to be land that everybody would share, and now somehow it's become Samaria's land and not theirs. The Jews, for their part, don't like Samaritans, and the Samaritans don't like Jews. And the New Testament is written mostly by Jews, so we only hear kind of one half of it. Uh, Jesus is very clear, and the New Testament is very clear that he doesn't, he doesn't abide this, uh, this division or this prejudice. Uh, but in his day, most Jews would think of most Samaritans, and, and for one thing, they were theologically wrong. They are, uh, they are unorthodox. They are heretics. They're somehow related to Israel, but they're not really. And some would take it further and kind of racialize it, and they would say that, in fact, these Assyrians, they say they're related to us, do, but do we really know this? Maybe Maybe they're from this other ancient empire that came and and conquered them a long time ago, the Assyrians. We might not have anything to do with them. And if they're out of our in-group, then we don't have to have anything to do with them. And so there are plenty of Jews that would just kind of live their lives and they wouldn't tend to think about this stuff. If you're going from Jerusalem back home to Galilee, uh, then you might just make your way through Samaria. 
But if you were a rabbi, or if you were a, a religious person, or if, I, I don't know how to describe this. Basically, we, we know kind of the, the it's, I guess it's way older than me, but that term, holy roller, like the, the people that, that, uh, that kind of wear, wear a kind of um, neon lights version of Christianity, like, like everybody look at me. I just picture like a Las Vegas, old school Las Vegas light blinking, Christian, Christian, Christian. And, uh, and, and you can certainly wear a Christian t-shirt and, and not be a, a, a hypocrite. You can have the bumper stickers. You can have coworkers that know you're a Christian. You can listen only to Christian radio. All these things can, can be very good things or they can substitute <laughs> for things that should be going on in our hearts. And so uh, this sometimes happens with religious people in the Bible, and it still happens with religious people in the church, and we can become those people. And in fact, if you are at church regularly, you're more at risk uh, for, for becoming that kind of person. We can kind of forget where we've come from, and this is one of the things that we see here. Because Jesus is a rabbi in his day, and to prove that you're a good rabbi, there are certain things you don't do. If you're going back home, you go out of your way, a long journey around Samaria, so you don't even set foot in this land of heretics. You certainly don't eat and buy food from their town. You certainly don't uh, drink with them from their well. Everything is, is they wouldn't say unclean, that, that's kind of loaded in scripture, but everything is, is outside. I'm, I'm too good for the Samaritans. We see this in the parable of the, the Good Samaritan, for instance, that the religious people pass on and they don't see the hurt going on in their world and literally in their street. So Samaria, this woman, let's go back to her, her question. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? So Jew versus Samaritan. And then man versus woman. Because this woman is alone, and Jesus is alone, and in kind of any culture in the ancient world, this was not a proper, respectful thing to do, let alone if you're supposed to be some holy man or prophet or teacher. So Jesus is kind of already, he, he's in the wrong place, now he's with the wrong person, and he's talking with her, and he's going to uh, ask for food from her hands or drink from her hands. Uh, he's, he's transgressing all these rules that are going on, because... Because he loves us. He's transgressing all these rules here. Um, it, but then there's this other thing that's going on. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And he wouldn't have to ask her if there were other people around. He's tired because it's the middle of the day. He's been walking all day. She's probably tired because she's been working all in the morning. And now she goes to this well. And you don't go to the well at noon. Each town, each village would have these wells, maybe more than one, but people would come out and you know that, it, that it's hard to come by a well and it's difficult, especially without the equipment that we have right now. You might have someone who thinks that they know how to pick up water uh, uh, under the ground, but it's, it's difficult to know. And so this well has been there for a couple thousand years. And over those years, people have gathered there. Everybody has to go get water. And so we will still refer to place as watering holes. That's where that comes from, from the idea of this communal well that everybody goes. We socialize there. And we go before the heat of the day in the morning. First thing in the morning, go to the well. Or after the heat of day, at the evening, you go to the well. Noon is not when you go to the well. This woman is avoiding something. 
or maybe she's experienced too much of other people avoiding her. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And sure enough, the story kind of comes out as they speak back and forth that this woman has had five husbands. She's apparently living with a sixth guy. We don't know anything about that. It has been traditional to blame all the end of those marriages on her, but that's not how things work in relationships. We don't know what's going on in the, inside of that, but she has suffered much. And she, in her, in her culture, in her society, in her small town... And we do know what it feels like to live in a small town and have other people know your business. She, she is an outcast. It's probably painful for her every day to go there and to think of the people that she used to see and, and there are probably people in her life that look the other way or walk on the other side of the street when they see her coming. She's known nothing but rejection in her life and she's certainly known rejection from Jewish people as well. That she's the underclass between the Jews and the Samaritans, she's the underclass between men and women. She's the underclass within her own small village everywhere. She is on the bottom and she knows what it is to be down there on the bottom. Have no one expect anything from you and to be surprised when someone starts a conversation. How would you even talk to me? She's surprised that Jesus would speak to her, let alone offer her something here. I want to zoom, zoom out for just a little bit um, to, to point out something that, that the gospel writer is doing here. The gospels are all written and composed on purpose for particular reasons. But John might be the most composed of all. If you look at it, there are, there are seven different signs that Jesus does. Uh, the first half of the book is, is about his ministry. The second half of the book is basically towards his death. Um, there, there are other ways that we see again and again he has seven different I am statements. I am the sheep. I am the gates. I am the lights. I am the way. You know, these sorts of statements. Um, and then there are other things that, that sometimes stories are placed side by side so you see them side by side and you recognize the commonalities between those stories. And two stories that are side by side is the visit of Nicodemus and the interaction between Jesus and the woman of Samaria. In both cases, we have someone coming when there will be no crowds and they know there will be no crowds. Nicodemus is avoiding being seen by Jesus, so he comes under cover of darkness. This woman is an outcast in her community, and so she comes at noon. They come and they meet Jesus, and, and it starts out kind of, kind of practical. I say kind of practical because sometimes with uh, religious elites, highly educated theologically people like Nicodemus and the Pharisees and me, we can think things are, are practical when not everybody would. Uh, but he, he says, uh, we know that you are a teacher. This woman starts out practical. They're talking about actual water from an actual well that they're actually sitting next to. And then Jesus, as he enters into it, he basically says some off-the-wall thing that makes no sense. In the first case, to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. In the second case, to this woman, he says, I will give you water and you will never thirst again. And in both cases, at first they take it literally, as if he's talking about literally being physically born again. Nicodemus says, how can someone, once being born, get back into their mother and then be born again? How, how, what are you talking about? And this woman, as she's talking about this, she's like, I sure wish that there was such a thing as a well I didn't have to come back to, because this is a pain. 
takes up my time. Tell me about this. And then in both cases, as, as they, are, they are kind of drawn in deeper by the thing that Jesus says uh, that, is, that is hard to understand and explain. And I think really that's Jesus' strategy. He does it with the parables too, that he tells this story that at first you're wondering, okay, sheep, goats, mustard seed, mountains, you know, three servants, whatever, whatever, whatever. And you, what you have to do is you lean in nearer to the teacher in order to figure out what he's talking about. And he unpacks it and it turns out that he's talking about you. And we lean in with Jesus in these cases because I just listed out maybe four, maybe five different ways that these stories are similar, but then the stories diverge. And Nicodemus kind of goes back into the darkness from whence he came. He pops up once more after Jesus has died. He, he pays for part of the funeral costs of Jesus. But he never, uh, we never hear of him in the gospel standing up and saying, I'm a Pharisee and I think what he says is true. We never have him saying, I've sold everything and I'm going to follow after Jesus. He doesn't do it. We don't know. We hope. And we see those signs as hopeful signs and we don't condemn the guy, but he doesn't openly follow after Jesus. Whereas this woman, not only does she follow after Jesus, want what he has, even after she has been seen, after he has seen her greatest shames in her life, after he's shown that he loves her, she not only follows after Jesus, but she calls other people to follow after Jesus. All these parallels, two very different paths that these people take. What is the difference? The difference is that Nicodemus has everything to lose. He is wealthy, and we know that because he can afford somebody else's funeral at the end of this book. We could have guessed it because the Pharisees had particular political power and religious power. They had standing in their community. They had a reputation to uphold all these sorts of things that he has to lose. And also, he would have to give up control because to be born again means a process that is acting upon you. That would be God acting upon you, not you doing the right thing so that, so that you can kind of maintain control and, and, and be certain of where your spiritual life is going. Whereas this woman has nothing to lose. She's an outcast among Jews, so she can't move down there. She's an outcast in her own land. She's an outcast in her own village. She's had five husbands. She's living with a sixth guy. Nothing has gone right in her life. And so she knows that she is thirsty. And rich people like Nicodemus, sometimes don't. Jesus, in fact, has this message again and again in the Gospels. If we look at the New Testament, and this, this message does show up in the Old Testament, because the New Testament quotes it quite a bit, but, but in, the, um, in the New Testament itself, Jesus doesn't even start with this message. His mom starts with this message. He says that the rich, she says, that the rich will be made poor and the poor rich. That the powerful will become weak and the weak will be made powerful. That when God comes into the world, that the unjust uh, ways that we relate to one another in this world will be turned upside down and all of a sudden everything will look different from God's view. That our unjust things that we do to one another cannot stand when God's kingdom comes. And Jesus comes as well and he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
He says things like, woe to you, rich. Woe to you, rich. He says things that are hard words like to a rich young man who comes to him, kind of similar to Nicodemus, has a spiritual life in order, according to what he's been told so far, has his uh, political life in order, has his finances in order, and when he is told, sell everything and follow after me, he goes away sad. There aren't people who turn away from Jesus sad very often in the Gospels. That might be the only time. And it's because he has a lot to lose. It even continues into the early church. That there, there are many women who follow the new religion that is spreading all over the place. There are slaves, there are laborers. But if you are upper class, you don't consort with it. And this kind of slows how the faith forms as it forms. And I think it continues down to the present day because when we look at what is going on here and the kind of external markers of who is holy and who is not, who has it together and who does not, Sometimes being a regular, committed church member or churchgoer is part of that package. And it comes especially close to me because I am very literally very close to Nicodemus. Religious education, trying to do things morally and ethically. People will come to me and they'll ask for counsel or they'll ask for uh, some particular teaching on some particular text or something like that. It can be very easy to say, well, I have, you know, 10 years of experience and I have a master's degree, so I know what I'm doing. That's, that's not true. And it's not right. And that's why sometimes you'll see pastors that should know better kind of blow up things in their lives. You know, people who should know better kind of blow up things in their lives because as we go, we continue to rely on God. We continue to hope in God and place all our hope in God, not the things we have attained already, but what God has for us into the future, that these living waters, it isn't a cup of water that kind of is, is not very much for the first time. It's not a pool of water that just kind of grows over with all kinds of scum over time. It is a living water and is directly connected to the source directly connected. This that Jesus is speaking about, he's told Nicodemus before, you must be born of water and the spirit. This is spiritual waters that this woman needs and that we all need. That needs planted deep in our hearts. You think about this well that was dug here 2,000 years earlier and probably silts or sand or whatever would get into it and they'd have to dig it out again and then have to bore down deeper again. So it is with our spiritual lives. That we can't be contented with what happened not 1,800 years ago, but maybe 18 years ago, a few decades ago, or even 18 months ago. We have to keep coming back and saying that this is the source of life in me. And this is the only hope that I have for being a source of life for others. And so we come to Jesus, not as those who are rich, but as those who are poor. We come to Jesus with empty hands. Next week, we're going to have communion, even though it sounds like that would be a great call to the communion table. And we set up our worship in this way that, that we come and, and we confess our sins together. And we come and we sing God's praises. And we come and we see people that we have seen a lot of times before in many of our cases. And it's because we're part of something dynamic and alive and still unfolding. 
not something static, not something figured out, not something that we have arrived. And as we do that, we need to be like this woman that goes and she invites others into the journey. Invites others to the well of living water that she has found. She doesn't just say, oh, that's great, now I'll have living water. She says, I know a lot of thirsty people. And if she has this broken life behind her that is just kind of symbolically within the scriptures to have this many broken intimate relationships behind her, she probably knows the people that are kind of also on the margins. She knows other people that don't have it together and she invites them in. And unfortunately, unfortunately sometimes the church has this reputation in the world and unfortunately it's deserved in a lot of cases that we are people that think we have it together and think other people don't. If we want to know Jesus, we can't be like that. If we want to be born again, if we want to receive living water, if we want to be serpents rather than in charge, if we want to be children rather than in charge, then we have to say, I'm in need. Because the fact is, Nicodemus does not have it all together just because he has money, just because he has power, just because he does many of the religious right things and believes the right things about God. He just doesn't know his need. May God help us that we would know our need and that where we have received much, we would go to others that we know are in need and say, I am needy, you are needy, let's go to Jesus together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are with us in all things and through all things, that indeed you died for all and your living waters are for all. Would you give us the grace of knowing that we don't all have it together? That would you break down those illusions that we have and delusions that we have? And the denial that we sometimes have or the, the comfort or comfortableness that we have in our lives? Would you help us to see how much we have to gain and would you help us to know how much we have in common with, with others in the world? Would you draw all people to yourself? And would you help us to invite? In Jesus' name, amen.